I've told y'all before how I can get suckered into infomercials. I love them. I, uh, I, I haven't bought anything off an infomercial recently only because I haven't seen an infomercial recently. Uh, we've got rid of cable a few years ago, um, and that's not a humble brag, between Netflix and Hulu and Amazon Prime and HBO Go and Apple TV and Crackle and Vivo and YouTube. I still watch plenty of TV. But I no longer have the joy of coming across infomercials. I mean, I, I can't get through a proactive infomercial without weeping. Um, <laughs> I, I just there's something about them. I think the stupidest thing I ever bought off an infomercial was the steam buggy. I was in college. Uh, at the time, I had no money, but somehow I managed to make three not-so-easy payments of $29.95 plus shipping and handling so that I could have a contraption that would miraculously clean my bathroom. All I had to do was to strap on this plastic tank and then wave what looked like to me a magic wand and my, my college bathroom, all the filth would just disappear. It turned out that it just got everything wet. <laughs> I also, because of infomercials, have spent hundreds of dollars on my abs. I've bought the ab dolly, I've bought the ab roller, I've bought the ab flex, and you'd think after one didn't work, I'd wise up but you would be wrong. Um, infomercials do such an incredible job of shaming us and then offering us hope. They do such a good job of telling us that there's something we're missing in order to be complete, that we are incomplete, but if you have this, you will be complete. And you know what? I believe it every time because if one of those ab machines had worked, even if it had only produced one ab, I know that every day I would wake up and I would look at that one ab and I would say, you complete me. <laughs> but it's not just infomercials. You and I, we're constantly bombarded with messages that shame us and then offer us a solution to shame. We're constantly confronted with our incompleteness, how we aren't good enough, what is it that is happening that is keeping us from being happy. And it doesn't just stop with us. Even our inanimate possessions receive these messages. When we buy dish soap, we aren't just buying dish soap. We're buying a miracle for our dishes. Do your dishes feel used and dirty? Have your dishes had it? Buy this dish soap and your dishes will feel clean and happy, but wait, there's more. You will be skinny and good looking and everyone will want to have sex with you. That's what it boils down to. Messages of shame and sex. This is the message that we hear all day long in a variety of ways and the reason it gets to us the reason it's so effective is because it's rooted in the storyline of sex, a storyline which we can see in the very first chapters of the Bible. I want us to look together at Genesis 2, and I'm going to start reading in verse 20b. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken out of the man, he made into woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. 
Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. Skipping down to chapter 3, verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This is God's word. Storyline goes like this. Sex is good. Shame messes it up. And now we feel disconnected. Sex is good. We were made for connection. Shame messes it up. And now we feel disconnected. Now next week, we're gonna spend a lot of time looking at what God had in mind when he thought up sex. We're gonna be looking at its original design and its beauty. We're gonna be spending a lot of time kind of unpacking what we see in Genesis 2. But I thought we'd start our discussion where we're at, where we're living currently, which is in the results of Genesis 3, 7. The eyes of both of them were open and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loincloths. Now, Adam and Eve had just disobeyed God's one rule for them, not to eat fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what I find so interesting about this is that even though Adam and Eve's first sin wasn't a sexual sin, it resulted in sexual shame. From the very beginning, shame has attached itself to our sexuality. Why? Because sex is ultimately about connection. It's about connection with ourselves. It's about connection with others. It's about connection with our creator. Sex is not just what you do. It's who you are. In the beginning, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. When God created us, he created us as sexually male or female. We can't separate ourselves from sex. Now, this is not to say that we don't make a lot of choices about how we interpret and engage in our sexuality. It's only to say that we, we are not created asexual. Our design as, as male and female is rooted in our being sexual. Sex is not just what we do. It's who we are. And with mankind's first sin, who we are came under attack. And so today I want to expose some of the lies that we believe about sex because the lies ultimately affect what we believe about ourselves. Shame needs lies to survive. And as I've wrestled uh, with what I was going to say today, how I was going to say it, what lies to expose, I got pretty overwhelmed. But then I realized uh, through prayer that what God's calling me to do today is not to end the discussion, but to simply start the discussion. That today is not about ending a discussion or giving a final word. It's about starting a discussion that I hope you will continue in the context of your home, with your best friend, with your children, with your parents, with your spouse, with the person you're sleeping with. This, I hope, will be the beginning of a conversation that needs to continue outside of this place. 
this is a conversation that needs to happen in the context of Christ-centered relationships. So I hope this week in your Summit Connect group, you'll, you'll stop whatever you're studying for just a week. Just take a break, whatever it is you're reading or going through, and just talk about this. Because these lies that we believe about sex need to be brought into the light. Because in the light, the lies are destroyed and shame needs lies to survive. In 1 John 1, it says, this is the message we've heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him, there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we lie and deceive ourselves. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I love this passage, but it scares me to death. I love the vulnerability of it. I love what it's calling us to, but it's a scary thing. But it's something I can't help but hope for. Shame needs lies to survive. Shame can only survive in the darkness, but once those lies are exposed, once we bring them into the light, we can not only know that Jesus forgives us of all those sins, but what it says right here in this passage is that you and I can have fellowship with one another. That all of a sudden, once we expose the lies that we believe, once we share our sin and our struggle, all of a sudden we can be known and loved by each other and reminded of what Jesus has done for us. Don't you want that? Kind of. Before we look at these lies, I need to say what the Bible clearly teaches about sex. Sex was designed to be experienced only in the context of marriage. Any other context goes against God's design. It's not God's best for us, which means in any other context besides marriage, sex is sin or abuse or both. Now, some of you maybe have been sexually abused, and, and I'm not going to have the opportunity to really address that in this sermon, and I hate that because the church has been so silent on this issue. But my hope is that this invitation to talk about matters of sex will encourage you to talk to someone because what has happened to you is heinous, and shame would tell you you deserve it. Shame will tell you you asked for it. Shame would tell you that you put yourself in that situation. No, you don't deserve it. It doesn't matter what the context was. So my hope is that even though we're not gonna spend a lot of time talking about it, that you will use this as an opportunity to talk to someone. Okay, let's, let's jump in. Now, I'm not gonna be able to address all the lies, um, but like I said, I can get a conversation started. I picked five lies that we believe about sex based on nine years of being in ministry and hearing from people of all ages stories of shame. I also read as many books as I could on the topic, which made me a little bit, like seem a little bit like a creep when I was at Starbucks. Um, 
Uh, my son, Atticus, had one book. He's eight. I have one book that I, that I was reading that he always walked in on me reading. It, and the cover, it says, God loves sex. And every time he's like, Dad, why are you reading that? And, uh, and so, yeah, it's made for some awkward conversations with my eight-year-old. Um, but there's one book in particular that I, that I want to recommend. It was called Real Sex, and it's by Lauren Winter, and it's about 10 years old. So some of the context is a little bit outdated. But as far as laying out a theology for a biblical understanding of sexuality, none even came close to it. And in fact, some of the lies that I'm going to talk about today came straight from that book. So here they are. Here are the lies, and they aren't in any order. Lie. Sex is just biology. I mean, if you happen to be taking notes, uh, make sure you write the word lie, because I would hate for like a year from now you to be looking through your notes and it just says sex is just biology. You know, so make sure you write lie, okay? So first lie we're going to talk about, sex is just biology. Um, do you have a song that stayed with you? Like uh, a song that you start humming whenever there's silence? A song that, uh, that really hasn't stood the test of time except in your own mind? I do. I have a song from my freshman year of college. It's by the Bloodhound Gang, and it's called The Bad Touch. Now, I didn't know any of that. I had to look it all up to prepare for this sermon because I didn't know the title of the song. I didn't know the band who sung it. I just knew the lyrics. And the chorus goes like this. Do it now. You and me, baby, ain't nothing but mammals. So let's do it like they do on the Discovery Channel. This is why we should commit scripture to memory so that in the silence, this isn't what comes to mind. <laughs> but even though this song has long disappeared from our cultural consciousness, its message is still pervasive. Sex is just biology. It's just about meeting a physical need. And what surprises me most about this lie is that anyone who's had sex knows this isn't true. I don't think anyone actually believes this, but we keep trying to believe it. Even when the idea is being promoted, the idea that sex is just biology, it's hard to disconnect sex from our hearts. When Monica and Chandler begin sleeping together and friends, Monica asks, can we still be friends and have sex? And Chandler says, sure. It'll just be something we do, like racquetball. But even the writers who were coming from a belief that sex is just biology, ended up having Monica and Chandler get married. Why? Because we as the audience wanted that. We don't want sex to just be sex, even though we keep trying to convince ourselves that it is. We want to believe that sex is just biology because it's riskier to admit that we have a deep hunger in our hearts to be ravenously desired. A recent study of men addicted to pornography showed that when these men looked at explicit images, they primarily focused on the eyes. I believe that every tender hookup is a repressed hope for something more. Because sex is not just sex. Our private parts are connected to our hearts. Every time we engage in sex, it either heals or harms our heart every time because our private parts are connected to our hearts. And if you've had sex, you know this. And this is, this is all sex, even in the context of marriage. Every time you engage in sex with your spouse, it either harms or heals your heart. And I encourage you to have that conversation. 
It could be a difficult one to walk into, but I know God will honor it because sex is not just biology. Our private parts are connected to our hearts. Now there's a church kind of version of this lie that goes something like this. Sex is a real biological need and it's scary and uncontrollable. So because you want to be holy, get married. Because of fear of sexual sin, the church has elevated marriage. I have a friend who works with college students and he says to them, if you wanna be the most free to serve Jesus, stay single. And then he teaches what the Apostle Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 7, where Paul goes at great length to convince all of us that it's better to stay single like him. Now, I don't believe that Paul didn't care about sex or never thought about sex or never wanted to have sex. I'm sure he did. But what Paul is saying here, and through the example of his life, he's saying that sex isn't this uncontrollable, scary biological need. He's saying you don't need the physical act of sex. And in fact, he's saying there's something even more rewarding than sex. Paul believes that it's better to be single, single because you can be singular focused on following Jesus and building his kingdom. That whatever Jesus lays on your heart, you are free to pursue it. You don't have to consider anything except what God is calling you to. And in 1 Corinthians 7, 28, he says, those who marry will have worldly troubles and I would spare you that. So marriage is not the ultimate goal for a holy Christian life. So if you don't wanna get married, great. Paul says that's great. But my friend who works with college students would follow up this teaching with this statement. He says, if you wanna be the most transformed into the image of Christ, get married and stay married. Which leads us to the next slide, which will seem like I'm gonna say the exact opposite of the point I just tried to make, but I want you to stick with me. And this lie is this, you shouldn't marry for sex. Now remember, this is the beginning of a conversation, not the end. Um, I'm not proud of this, um, but when I asked Kelly's parents if I could marry her, I could tell that things were not heading in my direction. I was 20, Kelly was 19. Um, we had just started our sophomore year of college. And although we had known each other since we were 10 and we had dated for almost four years, I could tell that her parents thought we were just too young to get married. So in a desperate move, I blurted out, you just don't understand how hard it's getting to not have sex. Um, and then I quoted the Bible. I quoted 1 Corinthians 7, 9, which says, if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Um, again, I'm not proud of this move, um, but I did get to ask her to marry me later that day, so it worked. So what's the point I'm trying to make? Now, I'm not saying nor do I think the Bible teaches that as soon as someone wants to have sex with someone, they should get married to that person because we'd have a lot of 14-year-olds getting married. But I do think that we've bought into the lie that says that even when we're mature sexually, we cannot pursue marriage until we really know ourselves, until we've really found ourselves. And once we find ourselves, we have to really know our potential spouse. I hear this all the time from Christians. I, I hear it as if it's some kind of biblical mandate for marriage. And, and the thing is, I look in scripture to try to find it somewhere and it's not there. 
it's not a biblical view of marriage. Duke professor and theologian Stanley Hauerwaus said of marriage this, we never know whom we marry. We just think we do. Or even if we first marry the right person, just give it a while and he or she will change. For marriage, being the enormous thing that it is, means we are not the same person after we have entered into it. The primary problem is learning how to love and care for the stranger to whom we find ourselves married. Sure, we all change a lot in our 20s. And that's a time in which we discover a lot about ourselves. But the problem is there's not some magical point in which we truly know ourselves. I'm 35 and I'm still trying to figure myself out. And even once I figure myself out, we are constantly changing. Marriage changes us. Children changes us. A change in career changes us. Age changes us. And not only that, there are parts of ourselves that have been hidden from everyone and even from us that we only discover because our spouse sees it. In marriage, God graciously gives us someone who can see our blind spots and someone who can call us into living the life that God has intended for us. They can tell us what it is God had in mind when he thought us up. Like it says in Ephesians 4, 15, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. Marriage is the great sanctifier. We are sanctified, transformed into the image of Christ through repentance, and nothing has exposed my sin like my marriage has. So no matter how clearly I know myself or my potential spouse, marriage will always prove difficult because sanctification is difficult. So waiting five more years won't spare you a difficult marriage, nor should you want it to. If you want to be the most transformed into the image of Christ, get married and stay married. I'm so thankful that I was with Kelly during my 20s. Now, maybe we would have less scars, but I know that we would not know each other as deeply as we do had we waited for each of us to know ourselves. Some of you have been for a long time in a committed dating relationship, which by definition is a contradiction. Um, but, but you've been in this relationship, and my guess is you've probably slipped into having sex. And my guess is you probably feel okay with it because you believe you don't have to marry for sex. You have to marry when you know. But the problem is that day is always in the future. Next slide. Sex is more for men. I hate this lie. I hate this lie because of the shame that it breeds. And nowhere is this lie more pervasive than it is in the church. I teach our marriage prep class here at Summit. And I just want to share with you an example from a Christian marriage prep book. In this Christian marriage prep book, there's a scenario that, that's being described where a young couple very committed to the Lord and engaged to be married in two weeks are on a date at the movie. They, they go to the movie and then they come home and the, and the fiance drops um, his woman off at her place. He kisses her hand chastely and then he goes back to his car. And in the car on the drive home, this is what he prays. And this is verbatim. 
there are two more weeks that I'll have to restrain myself. I know your grace is sufficient, but if you could just let these two weeks zip by, I'd certainly be grateful. Now, the young woman is also praying, and she prays this. She thanks God for a marvelous, glorious evening and asks God to help her savor every wedding shower, all the while cherishing the fact that she ate popcorn out of the same bag as her fiancé. And it was such an intimate moment with him that she slipped one of the kernels into the pocket of her jacket so that when she got home, she could press it in her diary. Now, this Christian marriage prep book goes on to ask the question, what accounts for the differences between the prayers of the woman and the man? And according to the writers of the book, it illustrates the vast difference in the sexual makeup of men and women. Now, it doesn't say this outright, but what it is saying is that men have no emotions and women have no libidos. What a pat bastardization of God's design. That is not true at all. God designed every one of us, male and female, with emotions and libidos. And next week, when we look at what God had in mind when he thought up sex, we're going to spend some time looking at Song of Solomon, which my best understanding is really a woman's perspective of enjoying her sexuality. It's a lie that sex is more for men. I have a friend uh, who struggles with pornography and she's a woman. Um, and in fact, she goes around the country speaking about it. And she tells me she doesn't have a lot of competition for speaking gigs, um, not because the topic is irrelevant, because she tells me stories of women who come up to her with tears streaming down their face and say, thank you, I thought I was the only one but because the church has believed and perpetuated this lie that sex is more for men. Therefore, sexual temptation is only every man's battle. I hate this for women, and I hate it for men. I hate that, that sexual temptation or sexual sin is the go-to sin when the church talks about men's struggles. Because yes, a lot of men have that battle, but not all men. In fact, there are several sins that plague a man's heart. Y'all still with me? Next slide. If you have sex with someone you aren't married to, you will feel dirty and guilty. Now this, um, I want to speak specifically to the teenagers, um, but this really applies to all of us, especially if we're considering or in an affair. But when I was a youth pastor, I often cringed whenever I would hear someone speak this, ver this lie in some version. And it would happen often. Now, if you have sex with someone that you're not married to, you might feel guilty. But you might also feel great. You might feel ambivalent. You might feel confused. You might feel no different than you did before. And now I get that it wouldn't go over well to say to teenagers, don't have sex because you might love it. But it's also uh, when to make a blanket statement that you will feel dirty or guilty if you have sex with someone who's not your husband or wife is just not true. And it undermines what the Bible teaches about sin. If we always felt dirty and guilty when we did something that goes against God's best for us, the world would be so much better. 
There'd be less lying. There'd be less stealing. There'd be less war. If sin always meant feeling guilty, things would not be like they are. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? King David, arguably the man who loved God the most out of, out of every man in scripture, a man who wrote most of the Psalms, a man who God even said was a man after his own heart. When he engaged in sexual sin with a married woman and then had her husband killed to cover up the pregnancy, he didn't feel guilty. He felt like a stud. In fact, he kept sleeping with her. It wasn't until months later that his best friend came to him and said, what you did is sin that he even began to feel any sense of remorse. See, the truth is, even if you feel good, if it's outside God's design, it's destructive. One more lie. And again, there are so many lies to be exposed. So this cannot be the end of the conversation. It has to be the beginning. But this lie says that great sex has to be extraordinary. Or another way to say it is the ordinariness of marriage gets in the way of great sex. Do you know that the average one minute sex scene in a movie is made up of about 60 different takes and angles, which is several days work on a film set. On top of that, there's lighting people and makeup artists, and I'm sure the actors have starved themselves for a couple days to prepare for their scene. For many of us, our sexual expectations are based not on reality, but on fantasy, on what we've seen in the movies. I don't watch The Bachelor because it makes me angry. Um, it's propagating one sexual lie after another, culminating in the fantasy suite, um, a suite that's located in some otherworldly location where The Bachelor will have extraordinary sex with each remaining contestant. And what gets me the most is that even after we watch two of the three contestants who experience this extraordinary sex and this fantasy suite gets rejected, we still want that. We still long for that. But our marriages don't happen in fantasy suites in otherworldly locations. They happen in between soccer practices and dirty dishes, and mortgages, and late night dinners on the porch after the kids have finally gone to sleep. Our marriages happen in the ordinary. Every day we get beaten up. We spend our days working really hard, hoping that we've done enough. Maybe we spend our days at home with kids, thinking that nobody even cares what we do. And all the while, we're getting messages that tell us that we're incomplete that we're confronted over and over again with our shame. And the answer that we often hear is that you just need extraordinary sex. Sex can be your great escape from reality, from the humdrum, ordinary life that you live. So we climb into our ordinary bed after an ordinary day with fantastical expectations. But what if it really is a lie that great sex has to be extraordinary? That the ordinariness of marriage gets in the way of great sex? What if that's a lie? What if you climb into your ordinary bed 
after an ordinary day and you say to your spouse, how's your day? And she says, I feel pretty beaten up. What about you? And you say, yeah, me too. By the way, you've got, you got spit up on your, on your nightgown. And you say, hey, I love you. Spit up looks good on you. I still want you. And many times you're too tired and beat up to do anything more than that. But when you do, that's great sex. It might be clumsy. It might be a little bit awkward at times. But that's it. Because that's really a picture of the conclusion of the storyline of sex. Sex is good. We were made for connection. Shame messes it up. We feel disconnected. And now we need something or someone to cover our shame. In marriage, ordinary sex serves an extraordinary function. It tells us we're enough. It covers our shame. It says to us, I see you. I see you and, and I, I see your imperfections. I see where you've messed up and I wanna see more of you. I still want you. In marriage, ordinary sex ex, uh, serves an extraordinary function because it tells us the gospel. The gospel which says that God sees us. He sees all of us. He sees us beat up and covered in dirt and shame and he still loves us and he still wants us. In fact, he will pursue us no matter what, even if it means he himself will be beat up and covered in shame. And on the cross, that's exactly what happened. On the cross, Jesus was stripped naked so that you and I could be covered, so that our shame could be covered. And at the end of Genesis 3, Right before God sends Adam and Eve out of paradise, out into the only world that you and I have ever known, he makes a covering for them. Genesis 3 verse 21 says, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Sex is good. Shame messes it up. God covers our shame. But unlike Adam and Eve who are covered by an animal skin, you and I are covered by the righteousness of Christ. And do you know what that means? It means we don't have to believe the lies anymore. We don't have to listen to the messages that we're bombarded with. Christ tells us we're enough. It's fitting that we're ending our service with communion. Communion reminds us that no matter what lies we believed, no matter how bad we've messed it up, no matter what shameful thoughts we've had or things we've done with our body, because Jesus has died in our place, we're enough. That we're worth it to him. That he loves us. That even covered in spit up, he still wants us. He wants to cover our shame. Let him. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let's pray. Father God, I, I pray that shame 
would lose its power over us. And it has. What you have done for us and your sacrificial death has freed us from the shame that we carry. Make us people who believe it. Make us people who believe it enough that we can speak the truth and love to one another, knowing that we're being built up into you, Jesus. Father, I ask that you would move in each of our hearts in such a way that we would tell the truth about the shame and, and, and the lies that we believe about sex. That we'd be a community that moves into that conversation boldly. And Father, I pray uh, for the marriages in this community. I pray as we pursue our spouses, as we pursue our spouses in sex, we would remember that every act of sex either heals or, or, or harms our hearts. And may that change the way we approach one another. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.